sovereign hand. That song says, the Bible tells us that He disciplines us for our good. Even things that we might perceive as afflictions and trials, the Bible tells us God, everything that God does to His children is for His glory and for our good. And so we can trust that the difficulties that He allows us to encounter or that He brings to us are for our refining into His image. So thank you for that message this morning. Well, it's the last chance I have to preach to you until Pastor Scott gets back, and then probably for a while, because obviously that's his primary responsibility. But if if nothing else, this morning and this whole month that I've been teaching, uh, you should understand that I think singing is really important. Uh, I've obviously talked a lot about it. I've given my life to it. I've spent years in training, learning how to do it better, learning how to teach other people how to do it. Um, and I think that singing is really uh, awesome and really important. I enjoy it, and I think it's really important for us to sing together. Uh, more than that now, even scientists are telling us that singing is good for your health. Uh, there are numerous studies over the past several years, some going all the way back to 2005 and, and some more recent, that have shown uh, particularly group singing uh, that is singing in groups with other people, be it in choir or clubs or whatever, that has noticeable and significant health benefits. Some have shown that it lowers levels of anxiety and depression by actually measuring lower levels of cortisol. Uh, some have shown that it has heart benefits. Others have shown it has immunity benefits. And cancer patients have shown increased immunity after singing. It has reduced snoring. It's reduced asthma. Um, and, 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 they, and they tell us, too, that even these effects are, are, are measurable even when, and I, I quote the study that says, even when the singing is mediocre in quality. So you don't even have to be a good singer to enjoy some of these health benefits. So singing uh, is, is great. It's good for us physically, for our health. It's good. But more importantly, what I want us to see this morning is that singing is a vital and indispensable element of Christian worship. More importantly than scientists telling us that singing is good for us, the Word of God tells us that singing is good for us, and not just for our physical health, but for our spiritual health. Worship is more than singing, but without singing, worship is incomplete. Worship is, or singing is a vital and indispensable element of worship. So if you look with me in the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 3, just dealing with one verse this morning, Colossians 3:16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God Singing matters and this morning I want to give you four reasons why singing matters Number 1 it matters because it is commanded. Singing matters because it is commanded. In this verse, it's not a direct imperative sense of the word. It's more of a participle phrase where it says singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But it's an extension of that whole sentence. The command is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
And then he says, how do you let the word of Christ dwell in you? By teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How do you do that? By singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So singing here is connected to the command of teaching and admonishing, and that's connected to the command of letting the word of Christ to dwell in us. So singing is commanded, it's required, it's desired by the Lord that we would sing in our worship to him. He desires us to do that as an offering up to him, but then he also desires us to do that because it is for our good. It's for his glory and it's for our good. And so real quickly, there's nothing really else to say about that. I don't know how much I can expand on the fact that singing is commanded. That's kind of the period, the end of the story. But I just want to comment real quickly. If you were here Wednesday night, we went through this in great detail. But what is meant by the phrase psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? I don't want to dwell on this uh, because we dwelled on it Wednesday night. But in general, we have three categories here. And some commentators say that all those things kind of mean the same thing and that we can just kind of take that phrase as one group, one lump sum, and just kind of say it just means that any kind of songs are okay. That's what it means. I think that if Paul wanted to say all kinds of songs, he wouldn't have used three separate words. And so I think there is some importance on understanding what each of these different categories of songs is. Um, And just real quickly, psalms is obviously the same word as the psalms in the Old Testament, right? And at this time in the Greek word is psalmos, we get the English word psalms from the Greek word that's in this verse right here, the psalms, the songs. And by this point, when the readers were hearing this letter, they would have understood that that meant Scripture. It would have meant the 150 psalms recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so I think that's fair to say that directly he's referencing that we should be singing what is in the psalms. And then by extension of that, I think it's, it's reasonable to understand as a principle that we should sing all the words of Scripture, that the place that we go first, the first item in the list, the first thing that should set our standard for what we sing is the words of Scripture. There are lots of other songs that are recorded in Scripture. They're called canticles. If you really have the time and you're bored, look it up. Uh, but there's, there's Old Testament canticles. There's some New Testament canticles. A lot of the songs that we associate with Christmas are found in Luke. Um, those are songs. They're called canticles. The Gloria in Excelsis Deo, the song of the angels, glory to God in the highest, uh, is just one of those. There's four in the book of Luke. But there are, there are other songs in Scripture than just the Psalms, but then all the words of Scripture are worthy uh, to inform our singing and then to sing those words directly. When he's talking about hymns, what was meant and understood at the time by the word hymn wasn't what we think about. When Paul said hymns, he didn't mean traditional songs versus new songs. Okay, the word hymn in Greek was, an, was already an existing category of songs that wasn't, that wasn't Christian. It was religious, but it wasn't Christian. They would sing, in the Greek culture, they would sing hymns and write hymns to praise great athletes or great heroes or, or, or the pagan gods, the Greek and Roman gods. And they would call these songs that they wrote to praise these individuals or these gods hymns. And so when Paul is using the word hymn, He's doing that because what had happened was the Christians in that Greek and Roman culture had started to take those songs and that same form, and instead of singing praises to heroes and athletes and gods, they were singing praises to Jesus Christ. And what happened was that whole genre, that whole form of song became totally co-opted by the church, and now, of course, 
the word hymn almost exclusively means Christian songs of praise and worship. And so what he's saying is, you have the right and you have the ability to stake your claim even on secular and pagan forms and to reform them and bring them in line with and use them for God's glory in the gospel. So psalms, the words of scripture, hymns, narrowly meaning that we can take songs from from the culture and, and turn them into Christian songs, uh, or at least forms, uh, but also songs of, of human composure. At that time, there would already have been hymns that people knew that were circulated and that were, that were more familiar. They had already established songs that they sang regularly, and so perhaps he's also referencing those kind of liturgical songs that they had already written and were already being practiced in the church, but then also spiritual songs. And in Greek, what that phrase spiritual songs means, some people think that spiritual only applies to songs, the, the adjective there, spiritual. Some people think that spiritual applies to all three of those categories, so spiritual psalms, spiritual hymns, spiritual songs, depending on how you understand the, the Greek language and the grammar, there's kind of some debates about that. It really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but the word songs here in Greek just means all kinds of songs. It's the broadest term that there is in Greek for singing, for songs. It's just any kind of song, all kinds of songs, psalms, uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Oh, uh, odes, it's where we get the word ode, uh, okay, from Greek. Uh, odes means any kind of song. So he's saying sing the words of Scripture, sing the established songs of your culture, and sing them to God's glory. Uh, and then it's saying sing any kind of song uh, that's inspired by the Spirit, that's prompted by the Holy Spirit, you should sing. And so this is what our, our command to sing is broad and it's open uh, and there's room for singing things that we have sung for centuries and there's room for singing new things that were just written recently. So our, we singing matters because it's commanded. Number two, singing matters because it develops our spiritual maturity. It matters because it develops our spiritual maturity. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then part of that, is by singing. So how can the singing help the Word of Christ dwell in us? Uh, he says, uh, first of all, what is the Word of Christ? What does he mean when he uses that phrase, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly? I think first, it means simply the, the message about Christ. The message about Christ. The gospel itself, right? Let the, let the gospel, let the good news, let the Word about Christ, the Word of Christ, dwell in you. But then, of course, we would take that, and I think it's not a stretch to understand that we're talking about the words of Scripture, because all of Scripture points to Christ, all of Scripture is revealed by God and inerrant from the Holy Spirit, and so we can understand that to also mean, let the Word of God, let the Scriptures, let the Holy Word dwell in you, and then how should it dwell? How should it dwell? Richly. Richly means abundantly. It means in quantity. It doesn't mean uh, necessarily like let it dwell in you richly. Oh, I really feel the word dwelling in me. It's not a feeling. He's talking about a quantity. So let a lot of the word of Christ dwell in you. Let more of it continue to dwell in you as you teach and admonish and sing together. Let the word of Christ continue to increase in you. Let it dwell richly. Let it dwell abundantly. Let it dwell much in quantity, right? And so the word gets into us and it dwells into us by reading it and by teaching and admonishing one another in it. 
And this phrase is interesting where he says teaching and admonishing. It's similar to what he had already said in the book of Colossians in chapter 1, verse 28, where he says, Him we proclaim, speaking of Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's almost the exact same phrasing. Uh, admonishing and warning are about the same thing, right? Those are similar ideas that to, to admonish is to warn. And in verse 28, chapter 1, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. And in chapter 3, he says what? Teaching and admonishing. And then he says, with all wisdom. And in chapter 3, he says, in all wisdom. It's almost the exact same. But look, look what he specifies here in chapter 1, though. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. The goal is that we would be discipled by our singing. That we would be increased in our godliness, in our spiritual maturity, in our knowledge of God, in our knowledge of Scripture, our knowledge of doctrine would be strengthened and increased because of our teaching and admonishing. And then he says that singing is one of the ways that you teach and admonish each other. Our songs have to have theological content in order to teach things. Keith Getty uh, said this about hymns. He said, the hymn format means that you can write songs that average 200 words. The average worship song only has about 40 words. So it obviously can't be as deep in proclamation of biblical truth. And I don't think that that's meant to be kind of a below-the-belt swipe at contemporary worship songs. It's just a statement of fact. It's not a matter of preference. It's just the, the contemporary song format limits the number of words that can be included. And since truth is conveyed through words, there's less truth that we can proclaim with less words. And so our songs have to have theological content in order to teach, and hymns help us do that. Uh, by having more words. There are a lot of contemporary songs now uh, from certain movements that are helping us with that, uh, that, are, that are kind of blending those two ideas, that are writing more uh, stylistically contemporary songs that, uh, that have a different sound, more of a contemporary sound, but yet are still packed with great theological truth. Um, and then there are a lot of modern hymn writers who are writing hymns, a lot of people who are digging up old hymns that we don't sing anymore, uh, that we haven't heard for a long time, and writing new melodies for them so that we can sing them fresh uh, and let the word of Christ dwell in us through these wonderful hymns uh, that have been written uh, for hundreds of years but have come out of use. So there's a lot of things happening right now in this area to help us sing uh, more theology, to help us sing more richly, to pack more of the word of God into what we're singing so that it would dwell richly, abundantly, in, in quantity. Um, but he says not just teaching. Right? There's two, there's two words there, teaching and admonishing. Admonishing means warning. So when's the last time that you were warned or reprimanded or corrected by the words of a song? A lot of the, the current wisdom and uh, uh, thinking of the age is worship songs are happy and they're fun and everything is nice and isn't God so great and isn't God so good and isn't his love so wonderful and it's all about me and I just makes me feel so good to come to church and hear about how great God is. But what about warning? What about the word of God, the parts of the word of God? Shouldn't all of that be in our singing? 
one of the favorite songs that we sing, one of the, the greatest, probably the greatest of the new hymn movement is In Christ Alone, which was also written by Keith Getty, who I just quoted. Uh, but in that song, in the, he says, uh, the wrath of God is satisfied. He uses that phrase. Uh, Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God is satisfied. He's calling our attention to the fact that we were condemned under God's wrath were it not for Jesus saving us and removing the wrath from us and placing it on Christ. There was a denomination just a few years ago who wanted to include that hymn in a new hymnal they were publishing, and they actually wrote and requested from the Gettys that they be able to edit that line to take out the wrath of God and instead say, uh, till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And guess what Keith and Kristen Getty told them? No. So that song is not in that hymnal because they refused to print the warning and the reality of the wrath of God being sung in that song. It's important uh, that we sing all of Scripture, the positive, encouraging parts of Scripture and the not-so-fun realities of Scripture that warn us that we are sinners, that God's wrath is against us unless we trust in Christ and His blood has covered us. All of this is so that we would grow up into spiritual maturity. Also, uh, in in Ephesians, Paul has a very similar, uh, they call it a parallel passage in Ephesians 5, uh, where he references psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and says almost the exact same thing that he does in Colossians. But in Ephesians chapter 4, he does the same thing. He precedes his discussion of the singing and what that has to do with everything. And before that, leading into that, he's talking about what? Spiritual maturity. Again, in Ephesians chapter 4, 14, he says, uh, 13 and 14, until we attain to unity of the faith and of the, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So, He's attaching the idea of spiritual maturity to what? Doctrine. He's attaching the idea of spiritual immaturity to a lack of knowledge of doctrine, to the the susceptibility of being tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. So our songs have to have theological content. They have to have doctrinal content. They have to teach us something. Any teacher will tell you, before you design a curriculum, You have to start with the content. Before we design our songs and before we decide what songs we will sing, we have to decide on the content that we need to be singing and need to be including and rehearsing. And so our songs matter, our singing matters, because it develops our spiritual maturity when we do it with care, when we do it rightly according to God's Word and fill it up with His Word. So singing matters, it's commanded, it matters because it develops our spiritual maturity. Number three, singing matters because it displays our unity as God's church. It displays our unity as God's church. One of the reasons why we, I and, and most commentators tend to take this passage in Colossians 3 as being uh, applied to the whole church and being that it's speaking of of corporate worship, it's talking about the times that we gather together as a church, because it could also be taken as this is just a a general 
instruction to you in your life, right? Uh, teaching and admonishing one another, singing, not necessarily in a church context, but just in your life. Just you should sing in your home. You should sing songs uh, about the Lord, and you should sing with each other, maybe you know, as you gather in, in groups for meals or whatever else. But no, I think that this passage specifically has in mind, has in view our worship gatherings where we come together as the church. And one of those reasons is because he puts this emphasis on singing psalms and hymns uh, and spiritual songs, uh, and singing, teaching and admonishing one another, one another, right? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing is something that we can all do in unison. We can all do it together. There's a lot of things when we come together, most of the things that we try to do is the things that we all do together. We all pray at the same time. One person leads us praying on our behalf, and we're all joining our hearts with that person's prayer. At least we should be. Most of us probably check out from time to time when someone's praying. But have you ever thought about that? When someone's praying, you should be listening and then joining your heart and your spirit and your will with what they're praying so that we're all praying the same thing. That's why one person leads in prayer. We all we read Scripture together. That's why I have us read Scripture in unison and do responsive reading so that we're all saying and doing the same thing together. It displays our unity together. It helps us unite our minds and our hearts together in what we're doing in God's glory, in the Word, in the Gospel. Singing, again, is one of the most important things that we can all do together. We can all do it in unison. Singing is part of fulfilling our responsibility to contribute to the body. We all have a responsibility as, as members. We're all members of one body. Everybody has a role. Everybody has a place. You have different gifts. But we all have the responsibility to live together in community, to contribute to the community, to serve one another, not to just come and be consumers and to be served, but to come and to offer something, to contribute something, to serve one another. Singing is one of the easiest ways that you can do that. When you sing in this room in, in a worship service, you are serving everyone else. That's what this passage says. Teaching and admonishing one another. It doesn't say the pastor teaching and admonishing you. It says that elsewhere. But it says that here, you are teaching and admonishing each other by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's part of your responsibility to contribute to the body that you would sing, to serve those around you, that we would teach each other and admonish each other and build each other up in our maturity uh, by having the word dwell in us. The second part of that phrase where it says uh, that we're admonishing one another, it says, in all wisdom. In all wisdom. I think at a, at a basic level, when we think about wisdom, uh, it just means the knowledge of God's will. And so there's, there's things that we can, we can extract from principles and that are, that are, that, that are God's will that maybe we don't have chapter and verse to point to. So the more that we know the Word, the more that it's dwelling in us, the more uh, faithfully that we're la- allowing the Word to dwell in us, we, we're, we're, we're gaining wisdom. We're growing in wisdom because as the Word is in and out of us and it just comes out and just uh, we live in it and we, we bask in it, uh, then our wisdom increases because we know more of God. We know more about God. We're more familiar with what God says and so our knowledge of God's will increases. So if wisdom is just the knowledge of God's will, then singing and teaching and admonishing in all wisdom would mean doing in accordance with God's will, which leads me to the conclusion that our singing needs to be well-planned and well-led. 
And I don't say that just because I have a job doing that. But I have a job doing that because I think that I believe and I think that you believe that that's true. That our singing needs to be well planned and well led because we need uh, to be applying the wisdom of Scripture to what we're doing in worship and doing it intentionally so that we're doing it in accordance with God's word and accordance with God's will in all wisdom. And so there's two different ways that the church in history has looked at this question. Some have said we can look at the Bible and it tells us certain things that we shouldn't do in worship. And so we can pretty much do whatever we want to do in church as long as we don't do the things that it tells us not to do. That's kind of asking the question, what does God allow? What's permissible? But there's another view that says we should look to the Scripture to guide us from the very beginning of the question. And rather than asking what does God allow and seeing how far we can push the boundaries, let's ask what does God prefer? What does God most desire for us to do? Those are the things that he's been most specific about. And so you have this other side, which I fall into, called the regulative principle, which just means that we should let the Word regulate our worship. We should let the Word guide us. We should look and let the Word be sufficient to tell us what we do in worship. Now, obviously, in the New Testament, there aren't a whole lot of specific instructions about worship. I think that's with good reason. So the regulative principle doesn't mean, as some have taken it, that Uh, Some have taken that so extreme that they only sing psalms. They don't sing any other kind of songs. They only sing psalms from the Bible. Uh, And they don't do it with any kind of instrument accompaniment because there's no mention of instruments in the New Testament. There is in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament, so they don't use it because the Bible doesn't say that. I think that we have more freedom than that. But I think we don't have as much freedom as some churches take uh, when all kinds of silliness goes on in worship and passes for worship of the living God. We need to keep ourselves tethered closely to his word, guiding us, asking the question, what does God prefer? What does God desire? So that we are singing and we are worshiping, as it says, in all wisdom, in all wisdom. Singing matters because it displays our unity as God's church. When we come together, we sing together, we are fulfilling the command to teach one another. And so we display our unity together as a church. Number four, singing matters because it demonstrates genuine conversion it demonstrates genuine conversion it says that you should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to god the first thing we see in here is that singing is linked to the work of the holy spirit singing is linked to the work of the holy spirit that's why i think the word spiritual while it does apply to the phrase spiritual songs, it's a little bit bigger than that because the word spiritual, that adjective in Greek, means anything that is prompted by the Holy Spirit. And I think that we can understand spiritual to cover all of those types of songs because all those songs are sung by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And in Ephesians, in that parallel passage in Ephesians 5, It even is more specific and more direct about this spiritual aspect because he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to uh, to the Lord with your heart. 
And so he's even more directly tying it to the filling of the Holy Spirit, to the work of the Holy Spirit. Our singing is prompted by the Holy Spirit because our singing is just a natural response to grace. Our singing is a natural response to to our knowledge of God's grace, our experience of God's grace, of being saved, of being redeemed. Earlier in the paragraph in Colossians chapter 3, we go back to the original line of thought in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, as God's chosen ones. So he's speaking directly to people who have been chosen, who have been saved, who have been called out. And so, in effect, he's saying, as a response then, since you know the gospel, since you've experienced the gospel, since God has saved you and transformed you, because you're God's chosen ones, then put on. And he says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If you have a complaint, forgiving each one another. And above all these, put on love. And then at the end of the, of the chapter, of course, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, uh, like we have read this morning. It's a response to grace. Singing is a natural response to grace. Singing is to be heartfelt. It's to be emotional. Singing is supposed to be felt deeply. And it's something that I think is hard to fake. It's hard to fake passionate, engaged singing. It might be easy to move your mouth, but it's hard to fake genuinely being engaged and being uh, captivated, not by the singing itself, but by the gospel, by the God that we're singing about, by the God that we're singing to. But, you know, there's a sobering reality that we often neglect to acknowledge in the church, and that is the reality of false conversions in the church. Some have called false conversions the suicide of the church. And there are a lot of reasons why singing has declined in church. And I've talked about that before. There's a lot of pragmatic things that we can do to either encourage you and help you sing or to discourage and, and, and keep you from singing. There's a lot of things that we can do environmentally and with sound and with instruments But I believe that one of the biggest reasons for the decline of singing in churches is the rise of nominal Christians and the rise of false converts in the church. When our attention to carefully guarding our membership roles went out the door in favor of chasing growth in numbers, the quality and the richness of our singing wasn't far behind. Singing is one of our vital signs. Now, I hear people talk sometimes and they describe their experiences when they've visited other churches or at conferences or special events and things like that, and they, uh, they comment on the, the, the greatness of the singing that happened. They say, it was so glorious hearing virtually everyone in the room at the top of their lungs singing praising the Lord. And I would simply say that's probably because most of those people in the room were actually saved. If we fill up our churches with people who aren't genuinely converted, they're not going to sing because they don't have a reason to sing. We sing because we have a reason to sing. It demonstrates our 
genuine conversion. It's prompted by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes in you and and regenerates your heart, it gives you the, the new birth. You come from death into life, and you understand the magnitude of what God has done for you, the depth, the infinite depth of your sin, and how far you were from God, and how offensive you were to God, and the amount of wrath that He had stored up for you because you were infinitely offensive to Him against His holiness and His perfection, disobedient and rebellious. When you understand that all of that is what Christ took on Himself, and not just for you, but for everybody, and, and, and then put you in His place of honor as a son, and that now you have fellowship with God, not because God just decided on a whim, it might be nice to have these folks to hang out with, but because He sent His only Son to die, to give up His throne in glory, to become a man, to be humbled to death, and not just to any death, but to be humbled to the, the worst possible form of death that He could have endured. You can know all that, and you can understand all that, and you can't sing about it. I don't think that's possible. I just don't think it's possible for us to really grasp what God has done for us and not be overflowing, coming out of us almost uncontrollably songs of praise. God tells us that our songs demonstrate our conversion because it's prompted by the Spirit and we sing uh, out of a response to Him. So, singing matters because it's commanded. It matters because it develops our spiritual maturity. It matters because it displays our unity as a church. It matters because it demonstrates our conversion. So in short, singing matters. Congregational singing, I believe, is the heart of all of our church music. It is biblical to include worship beyond congregational singing, but worship without congregational singing would not be biblical worship. It is the heart of what we do in worship. God in His wisdom did not give us detailed instructions about how much to sing, about what songs to sing, about what styles of music to sing, about what instruments to use to help us sing, but He told us unequivocally that we are to sing. Our singing pleases Him because it is obedience. It helps His Word dwell in us. It pleases Him because it displays our unity. It pleases Him because our heartfelt, thankful singing demonstrates that we have been changed by the gospel. A singing church is an obedient church. A singing church is a spiritually mature church. A singing church is a united church. And a singing church gloriously displays to the world that we know Christ, that we have experienced the transforming power of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for teaching us, for your word that continues to cut us open and reveal the idols of our hearts and make us uncomfortable and show us our weaknesses. But Lord, we submit ourselves to you and your authority because we know that you are a loving Father and that 
if we have trusted in you as our Savior, you have called us out from darkness to light, to not to punish us, Lord, but to refine us. And so your word does that to us. It, it, it refines us, it teaches us, and shapes us. Lord, I pray that as we sing in just a moment, that we would do so uh, with heartfelt thanks for what you've done as our Redeemer. Pray that we would do so with, Lord, with a view to just how far you have brought us from death to life. With a mind of just how lost we were, if not for your intervention. Just how helpless we were without your help in the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would not sing out of a dutiful response because the pastor fussed at us today. Pray that we would not sing out of conformity just to fit in with those around us so we don't look like the awkward one. Lord, I pray that we would desire for the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and prompt us to sing your praise because you're worthy, because you've changed us, because that's the natural response of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand, we'll